All right. Good morning. Welcome to Christ Church. Church of All Lifting Lives, Elevating Christ to Church for those who aren't here yet. I'm Pastor Andrew, one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm glad that you are here now, joining us here in the East Auditorium. Maybe you're joining us in West. Good morning to all of you who are joining us, and of course to all of you who are enjoying sleeping in a little bit on this Daylight Savings Day and enjoying your bed at home. Good morning. Not going to lie, feeling a little jealous today. But even so, I am glad that all of us are in worship and all of us are gathered as God's people today. It's good to be with you. We as a church body are in a fun and good time in our church calendar, a season, if you will, that is particularly meaningful for us. Christians for generations, going way back, have had this meaningful tradition that we as a church embrace as well. It is a time, a season that we refer to as Lent. Lent are these weeks leading up to Easter where Christians throughout history have dedicated a special measure of devotion and extra emphasis on their faith journey and on their walk. This might be a season of life where perhaps you give something up for a couple weeks in order to focus a little bit more clearly on on God and His presence in your life. Maybe this is a a season during Lent where you pray an extra bit or an extra measure. Maybe you got the Hallow app. I heard recently somebody tell me that the Hallow app uh, is the number one most downloaded app on Google Store right now, which is super cool. Uh, Maybe you're reading devotions more. Maybe you're reading the Bible for the first time ever and you're doing that on a regular and ongoing basis. These are all one wonderful things that can be part of our Lenten journey as we prepare ourselves for Easter. And that's really what Lent is about. It's getting ourselves mentally, emotionally, and particularly spiritually ready for the significance of once again having the experience of Easter morning and the life death of of Jesus Christ culminating in this significant Christian celebration. And so that's what we are in the midst of as a church as well, not only individually but corporately. We are walking together in some disciplines. Perhaps you're in one of our Easter groups. And more specifically, we are studying a particular character these weeks as a church. We're studying Abraham. Now, Abraham is a famous, famous individual, not only within the Christian faith, but actually beyond and outside of the Christian faith. Abraham is known not only within Christianity, but he is in other world religions, specifically significantly in Judaism and features as well prominently in Islam. Uh, Abraham is one of those figures in world religions and ours included that is really considered a hero of the faith. He is someone that is worth learning about and also from. And so we as a church are striving to do that. We are striving to learn about the life of this incredible and dynamic man as well as learning from his life so that we can have a deeper and more robust faith. Just in case you haven't been with us the last two weeks, here's a really quick recap of where we've been. Shameless plug as well, if you ever miss a worship service here at Christ Church, no big deal, you can go back online, go to the YouTube page, subscribe while you're there, and you can rewatch both full services. Otherwise, if you want to just watch the sermon, we also uh, post our sermons on all the different platforms that are out there, and you can podcast it. But it's particularly important in series like this where we are walking and they build sequentially uh, in, in, in a character, for example, his story. And so, Here's a quick recap of where we are in the story. The very first week, we got introduced to Abraham. And by the way, uh, he's referred to as Abram 
as well as Abraham. You see, he goes through a name change as part of his story. We haven't gotten there yet, and so most of the time when you read the Bible in the beginning of Abram's story, he is referred to simply as Abram. And so at this point in the story, God comes to this guy, Abram, who is hanging out in the, Ur, the city of Ur of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and he says, Abram, I got big plans for you. I got big, big things in store for you. And I promise you, Abram, some really significant promises over you and your life and your family. The first big promise that God makes is the promise of land. He says, Abraham, I promise that I'm going to give you some special, set-apart, set-aside, unique land for you and for your family. Another big promise that he makes is descendants. He says, Abram, I see that you don't have, ch- you don't have children of your own right now. I promise you, Abram that you are, you are going to have not only a, a child, but you are going to have descendants. You are going to have numerous as the sand. You are going to have descendants that fill the earth. And speaking of the earth, his third and final promise that God brings to Abram is the promise that he will be a blessing to the rest of the world, that through the unique role of his family, the entire world will in fact be blessed. And so Abram receives these really significant promises for his life. And in response to God coming to him and making these promises, he packs up the family, straps on the sandals, gets on the camel, and begins heading his way to the promised land, the land that God promised him, what we would call the land of Canaan in the scriptures, or more specifically today, the ancient ancient Israel, or modern-day Israel and Palestine. And so Abram and his family actually travel hundreds of miles and finally arrive in the significance of, of, of the promised land. Though we see in week two, last week, we talked about his initial stay in the promised land is rather short. We discovered this character, this person that God has chosen for these incredible things, is a rather messy individual. For as much as he is a hero of the faith, he is a very human hero with all the faults, failures, and fickleness that come with being human. He stumbles his way through the promised land and actually heads south to Egypt. It takes God intervening in Abram's life to get his life back on track and back up to the promised land, which is where we left him last week. From this point in time in his story, Abram goes on a variety of adventures. He is in the land that God has promised him, and all sorts of things happen to him and his extended family that's been traveling, traveling with him. But time is passing, according to the scriptures. These adventures are occurring, and Abram is enjoying. However, there is a growing unease happening behind the scenes in Abram's head and heart. That is to say that Abram, as these stories are unfolding, still does not have a son or a daughter, a descendant of his own, and he is still a nomadic herder. He's traveling to and from. He doesn't actually own the land, possess the land that God had promised him. And so there's this growing unease as the story unfolds and as chapters begin to go by in the Bible. If you want later on this week and you want to jump into these chapters, I encourage you to do that. These are going to be chapters 13, 14 uh, of your of Genesis. And so it's the very first book of the Bible if you want to go and read those. They're fun. They're exciting. It's just adventure after adventure for him. But eventually we come to a point where Abram is un- unhappy and dissatisfied 
the uneasiness comes to a head. And it feels like God picks up on this because God takes the initiative to come to Abram in chapter 15. This is what happens. Some time later, that is to say time has been passing, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision. And he said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. Abram, I got your back, man. Abram, I, I know that you have things bubbling beneath the surface, but like, it's okay. I'm still here. We're, we, we, you're just being patient with all of my plans and purposes and promises. Abram, I'm really pleased, Abram, and, and, and I've got your back on all of these things. I am still your God, and, and we are in this together. And God seems to try to almost smooth over some of that uneasiness and that tension. But Abram... Abram will have none of it. Abram replies, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? I mean, goodness gracious, you've given me no children. Because of that, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, he's the one who's going to inherit my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Now, I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, the, re the way that I read this and biblically interpret this is rather lippy. Can I say it that way? Like, can you read between the lines here this sense and this attitude of, You've given me no children, and this is what I got to work with, and you promised God. Like, God, you said that you were going to give me a kid, so uh, when's that going to happen? I thought I'd be bouncing a baby on my knee by now. I thought I'd be teaching him how to fish by now. I thought I'd be well down the path of this whole father experience by now, God. When is this going to happen? Pick it up. What gives, God? I don't understand, and I'm nervous, and I'm concerned, and I don't get it. God, what in the world? And we hear from Abram this sense of having questions. Questions about his life, about God, and about the future. Now, questions are part of life. We all undoubtedly have questions in life. I don't know about you, in my household, a lot of the big questions right now are, are unicorns real? Why don't I have Elsa powers? Those are a lot of the questions that roll around in my house right now. But I think it's fair to say that when we consider asking specifically God questions, the questions take on a new level of significance. I'm not talking about the joke when you get to the pearly gates, what kind of question are you going to ask God? Why were the bears terrible during my childhood so I had to take all that heat and abuse on the bus? It will go unanswered, I'm convinced. That's not my question. The questions that we really have are, God, why? 
Why is life hard? Why didn't I get that raise? Why is my kid struggling? Why? How come? God, when will this season of difficulty be over, God? God, what do I do? I just got this diagnosis. God, why? When? Where are you? I feel so alone. I feel abandoned. I feel confused. I I feel as though the world is spinning too fast and I just can't hack it anymore. God, these are the questions. How come I don't have a baby yet? How come someone I love died unexpectedly? God, how come I'm so unhappy? We have questions for God, do we not? I know in my life I have. Just like Abram. And and one of the questions that I get as a pastor, when I sit down with people and they ask these questions, they will float these questions. As God's representative, I get the privilege of sitting with people and engaging with them, and oftentimes I get the chance to receive the sacredness, to be honest, of some of these questions that are are so deep and so profound in people's lives. And and what do you say in response to that? And the the question usually is followed up of, like, can I even have these questions? Is it okay? Like, I've got these questions regardless. Is God mad at me because I'm questioning? Questioning? I mean, for some of us, we even come from a backdrop or a tradition where questions are not allowed. Questions of, uh, and matters of faith, you, you, you don't get to question. That somehow that gets uh, reframed as being un- unchristian, unworthy, and it makes things go from bad to worse again. And yet we wrestle with the reality that whether or not that's the case, I've got the questions. What do I do with them then? Can God handle my questions? And then, does that disqualify me from God's love? Does that mean that I no longer believe and no longer have faith? Because I've got doubt and concerns and questions. These are realities for us as people, are they not? And how does God even respond to our questions? If you have ever asked God a question, I can't speak specifically to how God has responded to your question. But what I can do is show you in the Scriptures how God responds to Abram's questions. This is what God says. The Lord says, no, Abram. Your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And then the Lord took Abram outside, and he said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. God does something beautiful and interesting here. He actually does not answer Abram's implied question. He does not say, Abram, you will have a son three years, two days, and 24 minutes from now. 
He doesn't answer the when. Instead of actually providing an answer, what God does is reiterate, retell, rearticulate, bring back to the front of Abram's vision the original promise. Abram, I promised you long ago that you would have a son, and through that son, descendants. That was my promise. That is my promise. And beautifully, he takes him out into the night sky. I mean, this is beautiful in, in to, to imagine this. I mean, if you close your eyes and picture this, they didn't have light pollution like we do. It's a dark sky. And he takes him out from underneath the tent flaps and he points to the heavens and it must have been majestic. The size and the scope of the universe unfolding before them, twinkling and smiling at them. And God says, look, look here. And you will be reminded of my promise. We as people need to go and look at certain things that will remind us of God's promises. More specifically, we as God's people, we go to the Scriptures, to the Bible, we go to church, we look for God and His promises in these places because we must be reminded of them. You see, faith does not rely upon having answers. Faith relies upon having promises. We actually see this because in the very next verse, Abram believes the Lord and the Lord actually counts that to him as righteousness. That means that their relationship is made right. They're good. Even though Abram has questions, even though Abram has concerns, even though everything isn't clear and tidy and, and clean in life, Abram is still a very messy and confused and concerned character. And still, because he has what he needs, needs, not necessarily what he wants. He doesn't have the answers he wants, but he has what he needs. The promise that was given long ago is reiterated and remind, he is reminded of it, and it's what he needs. He remembers God's promise of descendants, and he believes in that promise, and thereby has faith in promises. You can't have faith in answers. You have faith in a promise. Deep, life-changing faith, transformative Christian faith stems from promises. And so Abram holds to these promises. This means, therefore, that Questions, concerns, and our messiness can actually co and does coexist with our faith. If you have 
things in your own practice or your own tradition that don't make sense to you, if you have things or areas of your knowledge where there are gaps, if you have things in your life where you feel confused and overwhelmed and you don't have a sense of answers, that does not disqualify you from faith because God's promises are still for you. God's promises are still there even and alongside the confusion and the questions that so quickly and easily steal our attention. It is the promises of God that make you a Christian. And it is okay to have questions and doubt and concerns. That's okay. If you have that this morning, you're in good company, both in the rooms, online, and in the scriptures, because it means you're in the company of Abram. In fact, Abram actually doesn't even stop there. Because he's questioned one of the big promises that God has spoken over to him, he's been concerned, he's got these questions, he actually, God foresees where Abram's going to go next, and, and he says, well, if you question the whole descendants thing, you're probably going to question the land thing. And that's exactly what happens next. God sees this coming and tries to get in front of it. He says, hey, just a reminder for you, because apparently I need to remind you the overwhelming nature of your life is causing you to have questions and that's okay so let me remind you of the other promise that I've spoken over you I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans that's a city Ur of the Babylonians to give you this land as your possession I promised you that long ago and that promise is still true it is still real. I have spoken that to you. I have spoken that over you. And even though you're a nomadic herder wandering the land and you feel like you don't possess it, this promise is still true in your life. And I love what happens next. You would think at this moment, our great hero of the faith, the scion of the faith, Abraham, at this point, having heard the promises of God, seen the stars in the sky, would answer, You are good, O Lord. Right are your ways, and I am faithful unto thee. No. Look how he replies. Are you sure? How can I know? Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? He's still human. He's still wrestling. And he's owning that. And I give the guy credit for it. At least he's got the guts to say what's on the inside to the God of the universe. How can I be sure? I am weak in my faith. So strengthen my faith, O oh God. Help me overcome my unbelief. And God does something really weird next. The Bible describes it in Genesis 15. The Lord makes a covenant with Abraham that day. A covenant is, a, is, is like a reaffirmation or, a, or an extension of a promise. Covenant and promise, those words are, are more or less synonymous within the biblical context. And, and in this, this weird, gory, violent, bizarre ritual takes place. 
uh, I don't have time to go into the details uh, with, with great detail right now. Uh, suffice to say, this would be another thing you can read up on and look at, but, but here's the synopsis of what happens. Uh, it's actually a common practice that in our current day, we would struggle to understand, but in the ancient world would have been commonplace. You take a bunch of animals, goats, sheep, cows, and, and you, you, you cut them in half, like samurai sword, cleaver, shoop, and you literally cut the animal in half. And you drag the two parts of the animal so the intestines and the goop and the juices and the blood are flowing. I mean, yeah, this is what happened. And you do that for a cow and some goats and some doves and pheasants and stuff. And you have these animals. And the idea was this was actually the practice if you wanted to enter into a very serious agreement or promise between business partners. You know how in the modern day it's like, hey, put it there. Put it right. Let's shake on it. Let's spit and shake on it. This is their spit and shake on it. Both are gross, but if I got to choose, I'll take the shake on it. I'm not going to lie. The idea is that the two partners would pass through the animal parts, feeling the blood and the intestines and the gore squish between their toes and sandals. And the idea was that I am committing to you to such a degree, to such a, I am making this promise that I will be faithful. And if I fail in my promise, may I end up like these animals. What has happened to them, may it happen to me. That's the degree of commitment and promise that's being made. And beautifully in the story, Abraham cuts the animals, lines them up, and then he falls asleep. And in that sleep, he has a vision where the ritualistic historic symbols, the Jewish symbols for God, appear to Abram and actually walk down in between the animals. It is a weird ritual that Abram can go back to over and over and over again so that he can remember God promised and His promises are good. We have rituals too that remind us and bind us to God's promises. We call it communion, baptism. In the Christian tradition, in communion, the reason why we celebrate it every single week here at every single service in every single room, the reason we do it is because it is a definitive moment in which God comes to each one of you and reminds you, binds you, claims you in His promises once more. It is a place where you come forward with your doubts, your questions, your concerns, your ambiguity, your messiness, your brokenness, and there at the altar, God says to you through a brother or sister, giving you physically, tangibly, ritualistically, gives you His life, His love, His promise, so that you would believe and you would remember that you would remember and believe and have faith in the promises that God has spoken over your life. The promise to love you and never leave you. The promise where two or more are gathered, there I am also. 
the promise of forgiveness for all who would believe, proclaim with their mouth and believe in their hearts. The promise of saying, you are mine, I have called you by name. Everything I just quoted to you are actually scriptural verses found in the Bible. These are God's promises. And they are for you. For as much as God made promises to Abraham, God has made promises to you. And the most significant promise that we have from him is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who went to the grave, to the cross, and rose on Easter morning to promise you life and freedom in him. These are God's promises, and they are for you. I hope you'll join us again next week as we continue on with Abram. For the moment, let's close in a word of prayer together. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you and praise you for the promises that you have spoken over us and to us. We thank you that we can come before you this morning knowing that those promises ring true even in the face of our questions, our concerns, our doubts, our confusion. Gracious God, we rejoice that in his kindness, in his generosity, in his goodness, Abram would be real and honest and authentic in naming the questions and the doubt and the concerns of his life and his faith. We thank you for the tradition that has been handed to us, the rituals that ground us. Just as you gave a ritual to Abram, so too you give rituals to us to bind us to your person and your promises. Humbly, we ask and pray that you would, in your grace and in your goodness, Continue to work to remind us and bring us to the promise of your table where in bread and wine we receive you, to the promises found and known and preached and proclaimed in your scriptures. Bring us and remind us of the promises of baptism where with water and word you claim us and make us part of your family. May we as your people never lose sight but always hold true to the promises you have spoken to us. And in doing so, have faith in you, in your love, and in your goodness, just as Abram did. Humbly, we ask and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.